0: Good morning. Hello. Okay, so in this week's um, section of scripture, we come. We begin talking about what it looks like to be a false teacher. Hey, I didn't expect you to be here. Did you want to come up here? <laughs> um, but it's it's very likely that he's not just talking about the leaders when. Our passage starts, but he may be making the net a little bit bigger and uh, pulling into that net any false disciple, anybody that has a lip service um, profession without a heart of obedience, which is a very dangerous place to be, as we found out. So in this passage, we're introduced to Darth Vader. I'm not sure you knew that, but we are. Some of you may know that Darth Vader started out as the most powerful of the Jedis, right? His name was Anakin Skywalker, and he had a dream about his wife dying at childbirth. And so when that happened, he decided to join the dark side and give service to the dark side instead of and getting his power from the dark side instead of serving the good. Many stories that we, you read all through your life have this person that lurks around the king uh, trying to get a group of people to follow him and his, the whole point of his friendship with the king is so that he can in some way usurp his power, get his power, and some of the stories even have him and his buddies trying to plot the death of the king or perhaps the death of his son. So notice in these verses how these so-called followers of Jesus are only talking about what they've done. Did we not? Did we not? Did we not? This refrain sheds the only light we need to discover a fake follower of Jesus. No true follower of Jesus will ever say, Didn't we? Didn't I? They they won't be able to say that about any part of their Christian life from the beginning to the end. From the beginning, a true follower of Christ says, I didn't love God first, and I can do no good apart from Jesus. The true follower's heart then is shown. Did y'all get a little handout? the true follower's heart is exposed. Jesus says that the only, one, only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. But what does it mean, the will of God? What does the will of God look like? How do we measure the will of God? Those are really important questions based on the result of those that don't do the will of God. Um, well, it's pretty simple. Yet it's very difficult. The will of God is to simply be like Jesus. My food, Jesus said, is to to do the will of him who sent me. John 4, 34. Jesus did the will of the father. How? How did Jesus do the will of the father? By becoming a servant and laying down his life for us. In this he beautifully made known the very character of God, who is an outfocused giving of himself, God. Jesus perfectly showed forth the abounding love of the Father when he died for us. And so Jesus then can say to his disciples in Matthew 20 that they must be servants of one another, even as the glorious Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Right? He gave his life as a ransom for many. So we live out the will of God. This is what it looks like to live out the will of God as humble servants of one another and of all people. We're servants, not showmen. We do this in humility and not vanity. We serve with holiness and not hypocrisy. The true believer has a hunger for Jesus' name and not a hunger for their own fame. We serve with a heart of sincerity and not lip service. So in contrast, these people that Jesus is talking about are standing over Jesus and using Jesus to promote themselves. They are actually in the greatest form of audacity you can imagine. They're actually even judging Jesus' judgment, right? They're not following Jesus, but using all that he has and all that he was to champion themselves. But a true follower doesn't mind having their hearts examined right and their lives examined. I don't think Jesus is saying, depart from me, I never knew you in this passage to frighten, sincere, authentic, Tender-hearted believers, because those who really know Jesus and want to follow him are willing to have their lives examined. We want to be found pure in heart, right? We want our heart exposed before God. We don't want to hide who we are from Him. We're willing to put the Sermon the Mount Sermon on the Mount up against our lives, and we're willing to ask the hard questions about our affections, about our motives, and about our devotion. Each of, each of us do that. A genuine believer does that day in and day out, both privately, and then we do it together when we come to public worship. And when we examine ourselves and our leaders, which we're told to do, we can ask these kinds of questions. We may know more about the Bible this year than we did last year, But do we know Jesus more this year than we did last year? Are we we obeying Jesus more with every increasing year? We've maybe denounced many things and had strong opinions about things, but do we love Jesus more? Is the fruit of the Spirit more evident in our life this year than it was last year? Those are the kind of assessing questions a true believer doesn't mind asking themselves. Unless a true believer says, unless the Lord builds the house, our house of faith, then we labor in vain that build it. A true follower um, doesn't mind admitting their weakness. We admit that we're dependent completely on the Holy Spirit. When we could think about the future of our church, our little four walls, On this corner, and when we think about our larger denomination, and then we think about the church worldwide, do we not just become overwhelmed with the need for pastors and leaders of churches whose hearts are pure? If we've ever needed sincere, honest pastors and leaders, it is now. And then when we think about the world that our kids are growing up in, um, the world where unless God really does a mighty work in our world, the will of God as they grow up will become more and more ridiculous to the people around them. And that's what they'll have to face. is a world that thinks the will of God is ridiculous. I... Um, Just for curiosity, got on Bright Divinity School's website, which is a block and a half from my house and one of the, I guess, one of the foremost divinity schools in the country for academics. And I got on their website to see if I could find their statement of faith, uh, their purpose. I even looked to see what they thought about Scripture, what they thought about Jesus. Not... One mission vision statement purpose statement, who we are when you find when I finally got to who we are, we exist to train people uh to show the love of God in his diverse world. That was it I've asked um a couple of girls who are doing something a little bit different with this. I mean, I just became overwhelmed with the need for pastors and leaders in our church and revival in our churches. And I became overwhelmed with, with concern for our children, uh, where it is no longer the accepted thing to have a narrow path in your life. So I've asked Sarah to pray for... Um, they're leaders of our churches and revival. And Rebecca's going to pray for our kids. And I want us to pray with them as they pray. Sarah.
1: Father God, Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against your church. We stand on that promise as we cry out to you on behalf of the church across the globe. Lord, please provide your church with many godly, holy, genuine pastors mm. who will, in line with First Peter, lead their congregations willingly, eagerly, and by example rather than by domination. Mm -hmm. Psalm 19 tells us that your law revives the soul. Therefore, send revival to your church by equipping many to faithfully preach and teach your word with reverence and wisdom and humility and zeal. And the book of Jude warns us about people who creep into our congregations perverting your grace and denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Expose such false preachers and cleanse our churches from their influence. Protect pastors from the flaming arrows of the evil one as they struggle with fierce opposition to their work and with sin in their own hearts. Finally, the letter to Titus encourages us that (coughs) Jesus gave himself to purify people who are zealous for good works. Please, Lord, purify your church.
2: Okay. Heavenly Father, we just come to you and we just take a moment and pause and think of the children each Sunday in this church. They are precious, they are our future. Would you draw them to yourself? Would you protect them? Would you give them a fierceness? And a strength of character, would you give them great hope, great faith? Would you make us strong parents to be able to lead them to be strong of character? Would you help us to help their identity to be in you and not in their sports, not in their academics, not in their looks, not in the million things that the world would tell them that their identity you help them to have their identity in you Mm. would they be true and genuine believers would they boldly proclaim your name Mm. would you give them strength to walk the narrow path Mm. would you give them vision to walk the narrow path would you give them courage to walk the narrow path and would they be willing and strong to have you be there all in all
0: Thank you all so much. Now we have a snapshot in this next little section of Scripture um, of a follower of Jesus, what, what they look like. Jesus now gives us a picture of what it looks like to live a life doing the will of the Father. Of course, as you talked about in your small group, these houses represent lives, right? Two kinds of lives. On the outside, both houses Look the same. Jesus doesn't call any attention to what the houses, if there's that you could detect a difference by just looking at the house from the outside, right? They both do what a house is supposed to do. They both, you know, you can sleep in the house, they can eat in the house, they can live in the house, right? Jesus is not calling any attention to the outside of the houses, but he is drawing attention to the readiness of the house to face the storm. The focus is on what we don't see. The focus is on the foundation. Therefore, the house on the sand has all the externals. A house, it looks good. uh, It looks solid. But it has been built with shortcuts and the easy way. It was built the quickest way. And the house on the rock took the time and the effort and the pain and the honesty to get to the bedrock. By the summer after my, my senior year in college, I was so tired of sin in my life winning over and over and over again. It really had, it had beaten me up. And so I was facing, having graduated from college, big question mark, and just about as beat up as somebody could be by their own life. So I made an appointment with the youth pastor in Louisville, Mississippi, and I went in to talk to him about how I could rededicate my life to Jesus. That was the term that I had heard my entire life growing up. So I make the appointment and ask him if he could help me rededicate my life to Jesus. So he started asking me, well, the, first, the very first question out of his mouth was, Kay, are you a Christian? And I said, well, yes, I'm a Christian. I joined the church when I was eight. I was baptized. I've never missed a youth revival. In fact, at every youth revival, the pastors crying and asking us to come walk the aisle and rededicate our life. I've done that so many times. And um, I'm a faithful rededicator of my life to Jesus. So he then asked me to talk to him a little bit about the patterns in my life the patterns of my life in college, the patterns of my dating life, who I had dated, what those relationships looked like. So after I talked for quite a while, he says to me, Kay, you are no more a Christian than that chair you're sitting in. The reason why you're no more a Christian than the chair you're sitting in is because you cannot attach Jesus' name to your life and then drag it through the gutter. He was boldly exposing the bedrock of my life. He was boldly exposing where I had to start to build my life. And it couldn't be on these efforts of mine to rededicate my life every quarter. He was exposing to me and showing me for the very first time that I could do nothing, that I was dead in my trespasses and sin, that I was utterly lost. And though my intentions might be emotionally charged at times to want to follow Jesus, it was based on nothing. And he was initiating in my life what it would look like to just stop giving lip service to Jesus But to have a heart that was changed by him, that ushered into a life of praise and obedience and thanksgiving. One that would have me stop performing to earn God's favor, but of utter dependence on him. To have genuine faith, I had to get down to the bedrock of my depravity and need for Jesus. My total dependence on him and nothing in me. And that holds true throughout your whole life. Only this foundation can withstand the storms of life and the trials of our faith and ultimately judgment itself. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, John 3, 36 tells us. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So it's faith and obedience, our faith that leads to obedience. So, a true follower in a nutshell. We can summarize today's lesson with this question. What does real, genuine, sincere faith look like when compared to the fake stuff? Real faith understands more and more how much it is loved outside of ourselves unconditionally because God set his love on us. True faith grows to understand year after year after year how much more I am loved. Real faith gladly gives itself away more and more to serve him and others and not itself. But the person of real faith, the bruises and brokenness of the fall cannot reach the bedrock of their lives. It can't shake the foundation that they have in the fact that Christ loved them. Once we've been made real by the love of Christ, we can't become unreal. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. How many of you have heard this? A thousand. Okay. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was old, and um, he was so old that his brown coat had bald patches and showed the seams underneath, and most of the hairs on his tail had been pulled out, and his hair around his neck looked like a bead necklace. (laughs) He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger, and by and by break their main springs and pass away, and he knew that they were only toys. He would never turn into anything. They would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced, like the skin horse, understand all about it. "'What is real?' asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the, nursery, near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy up the room. "'Does it mean having things that buzz inside of you and a stick-out handle?' "'Real isn't how you're made,' said the skin horse." It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse. for He was always truthful. When you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become it. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair's been lopped off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints. "'and very shabby. "'But these things don't matter at all "'because once you're real, "'you can't be ugly "'except to the people who don't understand. "'I suppose you're real?' "'said the rabbit. "'And then he wished he had not said it, "'for he thought the skin horse "'might be sensitive about the way he looked. "'But the skin horse only smiled. "'The boy's uncle made me real,' he said. "'That was a great many years ago. "'But once you're real,' You can't become unreal. It lasts for always. Um, This little diagram on your paper uh, shows us what it looks like to be real. We end up back where we started, right? Jesus being the bedrock of our lives, our lives lining up with his, and our wills surrendered to his will. Ada said it really well in leaders meeting this morning. We talked about how this isn't rocket science. But it's the hardest, easiest thing we will ever do with our life. It's right here. We just try to, we have our life look like Jesus. And the Bible tells us how to do that. It's the easiest, hardest thing we'll ever do. Jesus being the bedrock is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And it is said in the context of the whole New Testament. Since the Sermon on the Mount is part of the gospel, it points to Christ as the center of the gospel. As Paul said, it is the gospel of the glory of Christ. He said, "We preach Christ as Lord." Second Corinthians four. We preach Christ and Him crucified. Second Corinthians three. I preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so the bedrock is Christ and Christ's words. He says, these words of mine I speak to you. These words which begin by declaring that the members of his kingdom are poor in spirit, humbled and broken and helpless before God, trusting him alone for his mercy and his rescue. This is why Matthew 5, Jesus says that the members of the kingdom must be as their righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. What does he mean by that? The Pharisees have external righteousness for show and attention. Their righteousness is full of self-righteousness, rich in pride and contempt for others. They were the original Darth Vader's. No, Jesus says your righteousness will be in your heart. It's inside out righteousness that depends on God's mercy and grace every step of the way. You will be pleasing God out of gratitude for his rescue, out of gratitude for him making you real and loving you first, not pleasing God to gain his favor and to show off to others. Still later, Jesus calls out the false righteousness of the Pharisees by saying they give to be seen. They pray to be seen. Jesus says the members of his kingdom fast and give and pray in sincerity of heart. They don't care if anyone sees them. They love God, and they delight in God. The word of Christ is our only rock. The words about Christ are our only rock. God has given us the greatest possible gift in his Son. If we will not receive him and rest on him and give our lives up to him and believe him to be true, then we turn our backs on God himself. We turn our backs on all that he is as God and all that he promises and offers us as God. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. That person can't stand when the storm of judgment comes. Their house and their life will crumble. So the final question of this whole study on the Sermon on the Mount is a very simple question. What will we do with Jesus? Thanks.